Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, who is now back in Johannesburg after his extended academic vacation all throughout Asia. So it must be nice to be home, Kobus. It's nice. It's it's nice not to be freezing. Okay, not to be freezing in Japan. Well, uh, speaking of traveling, uh, while you were away in Japan, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi started the year uh, on a tour of Africa. He went on to five African states: Kenya, Sudan, Cameroon, Equatorial Guinea, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And Kobus, little fun fact here that I didn't realize: for the past twenty years. Uh, it is now a tradition that at the beginning of every year, uh, the Chinese foreign minister kicks off his world tours in Africa first. So, hmm, didn't know that, but uh, that was a little fun fact that I learned while doing a little bit of background research on this. So, Kobus, give me the headline of what uh, and and save the juicy part. There's one very very juicy part of his tour. So let's put that part aside. And give me the headlines from the takeaway from the tour that he he recently just completed uh, his first of the year. His tour was seen to be very focused on development issues. Um, he, uh, you know, kind of the the some of some of the places that he visited, um, you know, kind of especially Kenya um, and Sudan are areas that are going to be linked by a massive Chinese-funded and built railway system. Um, and he was, you know, kind of playing the development card hard, you know, kind of during during his entire visit. Um, the other the other theme. That, that came up is peacekeeping. So during roughly during the time when he was there, there was a new tentative peace agreement announced in South Sudan, um, where China has been mediating heavily um, and uncharacteristically. Um, and also, the, roughly the same time, there was the first deployment of Chinese combat troops to South Sudan, um, which is you know kind of the first time that the that, that Chinese combat troops have really been deployed as part of this kind of multilateral UN peacekeeping. Okay, so before we go in a country by country breakdown of what he did, uh, let's get to the juicy part. This was to me the highlight of his entire trip. And remember, nothing that a Chinese foreign minister does, and frankly, nothing that an American Secretary of State or a French foreign minister does, is spontaneous. Everything is thought through down to the final comma and dot. So,、uh, in an interview with CCTV Africa. Uh, where he spoke Chinese, incidentally, and she spoke English. So I'm not sure if this was just a staged event or if she actually had simultaneous translation. But he he kind of revealed a very interesting quote that took the Western media narrative by storm.、Uh, the Western media, for the most part, didn't really focus on the trip until this comment came out. And let me read it, and then we'll get your your feedback on it. Uh, in China's exchanges and cooperation with Africa, we want to see mutual benefit and win-win results. Blah 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 blah. That's the same rhetoric we've seen out of the Chinese when it comes to it. But this is what's different. I want to make clear one point: that is, China will never follow the track of Western colonialists, and all cooperation with Africa will never come at the expense of the ecology, environment. Or long-term interests of Africa. That's a very provocative statement to say in light of the realities on the ground. What do you think he was trying to telegraph to、uh, African audiences on CCTV Africa? Well, my first, my first,、um, you know, kind of thought about it was that. He was that he was responding to a narrative that had been building over the last few years, which we have spoken about several times, 
which is essentially the neo-colonial narrative that China is building a new empire. So, you know, kind of he was clearly explicitly responding to that. Um, I think he also, you know, it was it was a little a little kind of a re- rebuttal of some of the implications that American leaders have also been making, especially President Obama, who at some stage kind of pointedly said that America isn't only interested in Africa for its mineral resources, uh, you know, quoting, you know, implying that some other country is. Um, so now I think we're in this weird situation where both the U.S. and China are essentially, you know, kind of accusing each other of only being interested in Africa's <laughs> mineral resources. Um, so, you know, kind of, yeah, the, the, like, what did you make of it? Well, you know, when I heard this, it reminds me of when American diplomats, whether it's John Kerry or Hillary Clinton or even President Obama himself, when they talk about democracy. And the Americans talk this great game about democracy, how we support freedom all over the world. We want open, transparent societies. We want the will of the people to be reflected in the political systems. And then they turn around and support Bahrain. They turn around and support the Saudi Arabians, Burkina Faso. The list of dictatorships that the Americans support for strategic and military interests is completely out of sync with the rhetoric. And and so I'm not sure if Foreign Minister Wang believes what he's saying or he's saying it out of a policy position because, well, that's what he needs to say because he knows that's where his weaknesses are. I think the Americans don't always see the inconsistencies in what they say and the realities on the ground. I am starting to think that the Chinese are very much the same way, that there is a big detachment between the political kind of messaging and the realities on the ground. The fact that he addressed environment, specifically in Kenya, to me was just rich beyond all imagination. I mean, here we are that the Chinese government can easily do something both for PR purposes and substantive purposes to stop the killing or at least have an impact on the killing of elephants and rhinos that has a direct impact on the tourism industries in Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, and elsewhere. And yet he comes and says the environment is a priority for him. So I see a total kind of just like parallel universe there. The other part of it is that what he may be saying and what's actually happening are two very different things as well in terms of the finances. And this is something that Howard French has pointed out, is that they may not think of themselves as Western colonialists, but at the end of the day, the money is being processed in Beijing, the contracts are being processed in Beijing, the raw materials are being sent back to Beijing. So maybe if it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, walks like a duck, it's a duck. Now, colonialism is a word that I hate, but... It may not be the right way to describe it, but it's a highly, highly unequal relationship. And, and so in that sense, I think, I think this is political posturing. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, kind of taking it from from an African position as well. Like, what what kind of depressed me a little bit about it was that there is this there was this feeling for me in listening to Wang Yi that, and you know, it's similar to listening to President Obama, that they kind of know roughly what Africans want to hear, or that they think they know what Africans want to hear. Um, and I think you know, kind of, it's a little depressing for me that they're probably right. Um, and why it's depressing is that I was thinking a little bit about so what what would be the worst, you know, why would it be so terrible to say we're only interested in Africa for its mineral resources? You know, kind of, because in, in, in a context where Africa can make a deal, where it knows the value of its mineral resources, and it can sell it on an open market for, you know, kind of, and make money out of it, that would, you know, that doesn't strike me as such a such a crazy thing. I mean, one doesn't need to be interested in Africa for other reasons if you happen to be on the other side of the world. 
you know, kind of what what it's you know, kind of in, in positioning themselves as as interested in the whole of Africa or like development in Africa, it it puts Africa continually in this childlike position, you know, kind of where they have to be cared for by other people. Other people have to be careful around them. They have to, you know, it's it, it's it, it just kind of it rubs me the wrong way. And I know it's you know, kind of it, it's a response to real imbalances in development um but it still rubs me the wrong way i don't know if, if it's just the, the nationalist in me it might be the nationalist in you i mean at least his rhetoric and i guess rhetoric does count at some level is on a more egalitarian basis they you know he talks again about win-win mutual benefit uh, on their aid and development programs they do things at the invitation of the host country they don't make any ties to to, to obviously certain kind of democratic or human rights benchmark you know, that's good or bad. We can debate that in another show. But at the end of the day, it does empower the host government to have more decision-making authority over its aid and development programs when it works with the Chinese. I will say something in defense of, of, of the Chinese here and Wang Yi that, you know, this. let's say this is a tradition of the past 20 years. Uh, every, for every trip abroad for the, f- new, for the foreign minister begins in Africa. You know, I mean, in the past year, we've seen Li Keqiang, the prime minister. We've seen, uh, you know, Wang Yi now. And the year before that was was obviously Xi Jinping himself. You know, all of this hype and talk about the Americans trying to be relevant in Africa and with the, the, the summit that happened last year and talking about American engagement, you know, these high-level visits matter. It's really important both for the, symbol, symbol, the symbolism and as well as the substance in these relationships. I don't see the American Secretary of State really making a priority of going to Africa. I don't see, you know, even Obama directing much of his attention beyond security issues in Africa, talking about Africa and trade and whatnot. And so the Chinese, they continuously keep this at the top of their agenda. And I give them props for that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it, you know, kind of, it goes to an even even wider level than that. In the sense that I think China is bringing new ideas, um, and the, you know, kind of the maritime Silk Road um, project that that Xi Jinping has been pushing. Um, it, it it includes Africa in a in a real way, you know, kind of it includes it in a strategic way, in a commercial way, in as part of an integrated, you know, um, Indian Ocean community. Um, now, whether you know, kind of you can you can talk that project left and right, and whether it's good for the world or not, that you know that that China takes such a prominent role in the Indian Ocean, but at least it is a creative kind of new idea that you know that that takes Africa as some kind of equal partner together with a bunch of other players in the case of america you know kind of i find it difficult to imagine you know kind of current american government and future american governments in the near future coming coming up with a really new idea yeah. you know kind of what it's essentially going to be is another version of we'll lead and we'll all work together and you should work on containing terrorism i mean at the you end know? of the day um, i mean but at the end of the day american foreign policy uh is just consumed with the Middle East and the war on terrorism. Exactly. I mean, we... Exactly. Like there's, there's no... Unless Africa becomes a Boko Haram nightmare, there's no way that Africa is going to draw more attention than it gets getting at the moment. And I mean, here even in Asia, 
you know, a lot of people in the kind of academic, intelligentsia, diplomatic circles complain bitterly over the fact that, you know, American foreign policy, despite the pivot to Asia, so-called pivot to Asia, uh, is not getting more attention. More importantly, there aren't a deep pool of China experts or Asia experts in the National Security Council or in the State Department because everything is so focused on either Russia or the Middle East. So I think if Asia is suffering, where you know, most of its trade is going with Asia, where there's huge geopolitical interest for the Americans, Africa is just going to wilt on the vine, in my opinion. And so in that sense, I think the Chinese see an opportunity uh, to take advantage of. And I think this is this is evidence that they're taking advantage of this, at least on a geopolitical level. Let's quickly run through all five countries and kind of just do a little brief rundown of some of the key issues that, uh, that, that Foreign Minister Wang addressed during his uh, trip. He started the trip in Kenya, where he met with uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, the president. And I thought that the most interesting kind of topic of conversation, I don't know if they talked about it or not, but maybe it might have been there, is the ICC court, the International Criminal Court. And China came out very vocal in defense of Kenyatta, who ultimately had his charges dismissed by the ICC for allegations that he incited uh, mass killings. Um, again, it shows a, a more comprehensive diplomatic relationship, more than just trade, but there is this other kind of support that, that, the, that the Chinese are lending to certain leaders. Um, I don't think that was on their agenda, but it was something that I thought about when I saw Wang Yi and Kenyatta together. What, what do you think? Uh, what were some of the opinions that you had from the first stop in Kenya? Yeah, the, the timing was definitely interesting. It really was. Announced. It was very close, but obviously coincidence, but nonetheless interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, and um, you know, kind of, yeah. It it, it was. It, it also struck me, you know, kind of, and it struck me how how perfectly kind of fit into the kind of wider wider narrative of of Wang Yi's visit. Um, the other theme in in, term, in in Kenya that struck me a lot was the some the symbolism of the big you know kind of railway project that's linking all of these different East African countries. You know, obviously China. You know, kind of its its first major engagement, um, you know, with Africa during the Cold War was a massive rail project, um, you know, linking um, Tanzania and Zambia, um, and you know, I think the the symbolism of now again linking East African countries in another massive rail project, you know, kind of can't be overstated in African context. Well, what did you think? And and I read this very briefly, so a. Uh, I might be wrong, and B, I don't have all the details, so that's my disclaimer. But um, I read that the Tazara Railway, Tanzania-Zambia Railway, uh, shut down temporarily, at least, over lack of money. And that was a railway built by the Chinese. And I just thought that, wow, when we talk about symbolism, uh, you know, here was this great infrastructure project built by the Chinese at the same time that the Chinese are building yet another massive railway project, one, incidentally, that Howard French, the author of China's Second Continent, he alleges that you know East African countries, particularly Kenya, could have gotten a much better deal by going through other uh, financing mechanisms than rather than depending on the Chinese. So, when we talk about the symbolism, when you think about the Tanzania-Zambia railway kind of becoming decrepit and falling down, does that bode ill for this big East Africa railway, in your opinion? Well, I mean, you know, in 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 the first place, in terms of the the Tanzan railroad, I think it also points to how Africa has had problems maintaining stuff, you know, um, and um, which goes I to the governance was, issue. I mean, that's a governance yes, issue, exactly. 
Exactly. And I think it even became more symbolic because I remember reading, but I'm now I'm speaking under correction, but like I remember reading that um, that there was actually a, attempts to kind of get Chinese money to get it up and running again. Um, so, you know, kind of I'm not exactly sure what's happening with it now. In terms of the contemporary new project, there's a whole bunch of other weird problems there as well, um, including a, a, a long legal battle in Uganda um, over, you know, kind of about who, which company got which contract and whether there was any bribes involved and so on. So that's that's been roiling for a long time. And for a long of course, time, really. there have been labor issues as well in Kenya. Uh, you know, in so many ways, this railway project in Kenya encapsulates so many of the pros and cons of China's engagement in Africa. You know, exciting that there's new infrastructure, big investment coming, you know, unleashing lots of economic potential. But at the same time, you know, Chinese labor, Chinese contractors, uh, potential corruption, maybe overbilling, uh, you, you know, lots of pros and cons in this one deal here. But that was his first trip. Then the, the foreign minister headed up to Sudan, where he was in Khartoum. And in Khartoum, he kind of stepped right in the middle of the South Sudan peace process. Uh, this is one, if you recall, that China has been extremely active in. And it's really one of the areas of potential cooperation between the United States and China, because because both have a very, very... Uh, you know, they have, they're both deeply engaged in this conflict for very different reasons. Obviously, the Chinese are there in part and largely because of oil. Uh, in fact, this uh, trip followed up the arrival of 700 combat UN peacekeeping forces in South Sudan there to protect Chinese oil installations and Chinese and international community property and people. So uh, the South Sudan conflict and also Khartoum, uh, what was your thoughts on that? I found it interesting to see, you know, kind of the the way that the Chinese peacekeeping, um, you know, the, the the kind of press reception that the Chinese peacekeeping got, um, where it was necessary for the for the UN command of of the the wider peacekeeping mission in South Sudan to actually come out and explicitly say that these Chinese combat troops are not going to be used to protect Chinese oil interests. That they're actually going to be used to protect kind of displaced, you know, internally displaced. That's South a Sudanese. shift because in the beginning the Chinese were very clear in saying they were de- being deployed to protect Chinese oil interests. So that is in fact a change in rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting to see to see it kind of happening in that kind of way, um, and you know, kind of it, it was one of those moments where you where you kind of wondering like what what was going on, you know, kind of I'd lo- I'd love to get the kind of the, the unedited kind of transcripts of those conversations, you know, kind of to see to see what was actually, you know, how the messaging was planned and like how things changed. Well, it's kind of par for the course for the Chinese in 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 the Sudans, you know, particularly South Sudan. If you recall, last June. The Chinese ambassador to South Sudan said, we will never, ever, ever, you know, sell weapons to one side of the conflict. We are not in the business of selling weapons. Lo and behold, $38 million in arms go to the government. Uh, so so this kind of inconsistent messaging uh, is, is, I think, in some ways reflective of the fact that China is really in uncharted territory here in, in, in the Sudan conflict, in the South Sudan conflict. Um, this is, and, and uh, you know, Luke Patey, who we've had on the show who's really one of the top specialists, along with Dan Large, on China and the Sudan, talks about how, you know, Sudan and South Sudan are having a bigger impact on China than, than vice versa. And in some ways, we're seeing the Chinese kind of feel their way into international diplomacy on, on a big stage. And this is something, this is high stakes for them, but they're obviously, you know, going through some growing pains. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that also part of the growing pains is exactly as you said, is is trying to work out messaging, you know, kind of and, and um, the consistency in messaging and also just to, to, to keep, you know, kind of uh, realizing how important the press is. Yeah, um, yeah I, th- I think that that's a difficult process for China to, to master, I think. Okay, then uh, actually I'm not entirely sure of the order here, but uh, we'll just go on my list. Uh, Cameroon. Uh, was next. Now, Cameroon was an l- interesting choice uh, of a country because normally I can figure out very, you know, just by looking at the country, why a top Chinese official goes there. Uh, clearly, the Sudan and, and South Sudan make sense. Kenya makes sense. Uh, the other stops on his itinerary made lots of sense. Cameroon didn't make sense for me. Um, I'm not, you know, there's not a lot of oil in Cameroon. I think there's some. Uh, raw materials, well, there's no more in Cameroon than there is anywhere else. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, this isn't a raw material play. Is it a geopolitical play? Ugh, not sure. Uh, maybe it's just a goodwill diplomacy play that they, you know, they haven't been to Cameroon in 10 years. So what the hell? Let's go to Cameroon. Why do you think that they included Cameroon on, and Yaoundé on the, uh, on the agenda? I have to say, I also didn't really know. I was also kind of looking at it and wondering, because, you know, another thing would be to cover different kinds of linguistic regions. But I mean, the DRC is Francophone as well. So, um, yeah, I have to say, I wasn't actually sure why. Okay, well, while he was in Cameroon, he met with Paul Bia. Uh, They talked about, obviously, you know, the same old platitudes of economic engagement, cultural exchanges, academic, whatnot. But I, want, I really wonder if Boko Haram did come up on the agenda. And that's in part because, if you recall last year, 10, I think it was 10 uh, Chinese workers were kidnapped by Boko Haram in northern Cameroon. Uh, now Boko Haram has crossed the border repeatedly over the past several weeks and to make incursions into Cameroon, really kind of raising the fear that this is becoming a regional conflict extending beyond Nigeria. And Boko Haram is is really becoming a threat. This is something that the Chinese have spoken out against. So I wonder if that was on the agenda. I don't think that was why he went to Cameroon, but it was certainly a point of interest between the Cameroonians and the Chinese in 2014. Yeah, I mean, it would be very interesting to see how China responds to Boko Haram, um, you know, kind of, and because obviously one of one of the big one of the big precedents to this kind of cross border terrorism um, is is the situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So you know, kind of, obviously, no one wants Boko Haram to go in that direction. No. Um, so you know, kind of, I, it'll be interesting to see whether China, you know, kind of announces any any kind of measure. Um, or whether it's simply maybe, you know, kind of gathering information and, and keeping an eye on the situation. I have no idea. Well, I mean, I think if, if Boko Haram is anything like ISIS, uh, the Chinese are really going to want to see the Americans take the lead. And uh, it was very funny. I spoke with uh, uh, an academic scholar, an American academic scholar who's based in Beijing a couple weeks ago. And, and she pointed out to me, she says, for all the, 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 the angst that the Chinese have about, you know, American intervention in the internal affairs of other countries, one point that the Chinese have made very clear to the Americans, at least in closed channels, is, uh, you know, they got to do something about ISIS. You know, they got to get this thing under control because Chinese oil interests are being threatened, Chinese stability of its investments in, throughout the Middle East and the Gulf are being threatened. And I think Boko Haram may be in the same vein of this, is that, you know, sometimes it's good to have the big American state. That that can be swung around anywhere it wants to. So, 
that will be interesting. It might be, again, another area of cooperation between the Chinese and Americans in Africa, maybe, just a thought. Um, we always look for those little glimmers of hope that come up every once in a while. Um, well, next, he, uh, he was in the Democratic Republic of, uh, of the Congo. And what I found so interesting about this trip is that typically when high-profile Chinese delegates and delegations arrive in Kinshasa, uh, Joseph Kabila is the one who hosts them. And this time it was Prime Minister Augustin Mataya, uh, Matata Ponyo and who took the center stage and who really led the negotiations and had the pictures, the photo op moments there. And that really took me by surprise. Obviously, the, the Chinese have a huge, huge stakes and in investments in the DRC, particularly in the eastern DRC with the Sicko Mines deal. Um, did it surprise you that we didn't see more of Joseph Kabila in the photo op? Yes, it did. I was wondering whether it had anything to do with, you know, kind of with the rumors or controversies about a possible third term for Joseph Kabila. Um, but, but wait, wait, why would that? I mean, the Chinese don't give a crap about that kind of stuff. You know, the Americans, the I Americans mean, are always big about, you know, follow, follow constitutional law, governance, transparency. That's not something that bothers the Chinese. And I could even think that the Chinese, you know, would prefer to have someone like Kabila a known entity that they've been dealing with for a long time rather than, you know, somebody new that they have to kind of, you know, start the bribing process all over from the beginning. But I mean, that's, you know, kind of, there would be a difference between the photo ops and the the, the behind the scenes negotiations, that's right? True. I mean, you know, kind of, it, would, it might indicate that they're more sensitive in terms of, of you know, kind of, of the the optics of, of their relationships with these long-term leaders. But then, I mean, you know, while I'm saying this, I'm thinking, yes, but they, you know, kind of, they um, hosted Robert Mugabe royally in Beijing recently, so they probably did. not. So for those of you who only knew Joseph Kabila as... As, uh, as a political leader in uh, in the DRC. Uh, Augustin Matata Ponyo, well, there he is. Look for pictures of him with Wang Yi. And, and they did this really kind of like, you know, it was like Obama and Xi Jinping kind of open coat, not formal. They were walking, you know, through the garden. And it was a very relaxed uh, type of image that they were putting forth, which I think in some ways the message that they wanted to convey to the outside world was China is very, very much at ease in this part of the world. This was very relaxed diplomacy, you know, no ties, very informal. And I think in some ways there was, whether intentional or unintentional, a way to telegraph that, you know what, this is, this is we're, we're, we're comfortable here. We know the players. We've been here for a long time. We're very much at ease. This is not kind of, you know, difficult diplomacy for us. And in a part, you know, the DRC is one of the toughest places in the world to do business, either political, diplomatic, or economic. So for the Chinese to be comfortable there, or at least project that comfort, uh, that was pretty interesting to me. Let's head up yeah, to... Yeah, I want some... Yeah, just, just, just before it closes, I want some grad students in media studies to do a dissertation on the, the different... on the clothes of Chinese leaders in African visits through the through the decades. Uh, yeah. You know, kind of... Just, just I could do a fashion critique of all well, of these pictures. <laughs> but I think these photo ops are thought through. I, there's not accidental. There is absolutely nothing accidental. And in some ways, you remember when we talked about the Inga Dam and how the Chinese made an invitation for the Americans to participate in the Inga Dam. And that was done as a way to show almost someone gave, I forget who our guest was, said it was a, almost a point of condescension to the Americans that says, you know, this is our sphere of influence. So you can participate if you want to. We, we, we will allow that. And I think in some ways these photo ops that they're kind of messaging out says that, you know what, we're here and we're comfortable. 
and, and again, if you're comfortable in Kinshasa, hats off to you. As I said, as a former resident of Kinshasa <laughs> myself, it's not a place that you can easily become comfortable. Uh, let's round out this little tour of Africa in Equatorial Guinea. And I think the part of this that I like the most, we all know why Equatorial Guinea was put on the map. I mean, it is a desperately poor country. It's a tiny little speck of a country, but it is sitting on oceans of oil. And it is one of the emerging hotspots for oil for the Chinese. Uh, so I think that's the only reason anybody goes to Equatorial Guinea. Um, it is one of the more corrupt countries in Africa, which makes it difficult for the Equatorial Guineans to deal with the United States and the West. But obviously, the Chinese don't have any problem doing business with these guys. Uh, what I thought was most interesting was that the headline that came out that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, from Beijing put out as their big top story on this trip to Equatorial Guinea is that uh, Wang Yi inaugurated the country's new foreign ministry building. And nothing says kind of like, you know, we're... I mean, we own your ass is what I basically was thinking to myself. But when you're building the foreign ministry building, there is no objectivity left, you know. I mean, and this is a this is a tactic that the Chinese have done in Accra, in Ghana. Uh, I think in Tanzania as well, they built, uh, they built the, uh, the foreign ministry building. I don't know. To me, that just... That just says you are there. I mean, the Chinese, when you're building the, the, the parliament buildings, the foreign ministry buildings, the defense ministry buildings, um, that's a deep connection in some ways. And I think it's a very, very good move on the part of the Chinese to do this. Uh, but that was the headline that came out of Equatorial Guinea. Yeah, um, what what also struck me was this kind of east-west axis of all of the all of the visits. Um, you know, there was no north and there was no south. It it was you know it, 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 the the visits can be plotted as essentially this kind of line from from east to west, and frequent and a lot of it was predicated on not current necessarily even current development of Chinese field development, but future Chinese field development. So, you know, kind of there is talk about, you know, kind of facilitation of of, of the oil industry in Equatorial Guinea funded by China, um, the Grand Inga Dam, the DRC, the rail projects in, in East Africa. Um, so it was, was the, did you think that was some kind of subliminal theme of this visit? That you know, kind of, we were talking about the future development, and we're talking about some kind of corridor, east-west corridor across Africa. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. Um, in terms of the future development, I think the next kind of the the next what am I looking frontier? There we go. That's the word. The next frontier for the Chinese in Africa is Francophone Africa, and in that sense, maybe that explains Cameroon. Is that the Chinese need to kind of they, they're very they're very weak in Francophone Africa. They don't have a big presence in the Cote d'Ivoire. They don't have a big presence in in, in Gabon. They're trying to, uh, but Cameroon might be that. So when we talk about kind of why did they do this east-west axis as opposed to a north-south, uh, I thought that that was in that's one area. the The part that interested me is that Algeria and the Maghreb and North Africa. Uh, not only being Francophone Africa, but also being the destination now of more Chinese investment than almost anywhere on the continent. And I was surprised that Algeria, for example, wasn't there, uh, or, or Tunisia for the matter, is that the Chinese are trying to kind of deepen their relationships in the Maghreb. And that was one area that I would have thought that would have been on this itinerary. Now, of course, he can't go everywhere. Uh, but when we look at the next frontier in the future, uh, definitely Cameroon, certainly Sudan, the DRC, in Kenya, that is where their base of operations have been for the past 10 years. The next 10 years, I think, will be heavily, heavily entrenched in, in, in Francophone Africa. 
Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how they finesse the French influence there. I mean, there was talk a while ago, briefly, of some kind of plan for Franco-Chinese cooperation in in West Africa. Um, And there was this photo up uh, between, I don't know which... Chinese leader and um, Francois Hollande, um, and you know it, it. It was mentioned, and then I have I haven't really heard anything about it again. I don't buy um, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just it's too mm. complicated. It's way too complicated. Mm. It's complicated for the francophone Africans. It's complicated for the French. Everybody's got different agendas. Everybody has different ways of doing business. Different standards. Different stakeholders and political factions at home that are guiding and pressuring them. So I, these these kind of I don't know these kind of tripartite types of deals I I don't buy. Yeah, but I think you know I think there will be jubilation in Africa if it's possible to to weaken the French grip on West Africa. Um, you know the you know that 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 has been such a bad marriage um, over so long, and you know the I think the the whole of the, the whole of the rest of the continent would be would be ecstatic if if there was some kind of like loosening or or complicating of that power relationship. I think in West Africa. Well, all in all, it looks like Wang Yi had a a, a good trip. If you read the headlines, he didn't. Make- Make any gaffes. There were no, uh, there was no embarrassing kind of uh, you know headlines that came out of it. Uh, at, you know he declared you know a little bit surprisingly that they're not going to be Western colonialists. We will continue to debate that here on the show and on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash China Africa Project. Kobus and I are updating the page uh, almost 24 hours a day, actually throughout the day, uh, with with the latest headlines. There's discussions. We got 263,000 people from all over the world who are participating in in our page, and we'd love for you to join us as well. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Uh, you can find me over at eolander e o l a n d e r. And Kobus, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you in terms of what you're reading and writing these days? I am on Twitter at Sardenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E, and I'm also daily on our Facebook page. And we love to hear from you. We love to hear story ideas, feedback, criticisms. That's, you know, debate, discussions. Do you agree or disagree with some things that we're saying? Uh, That is fantastic when we get people to kind of reach out to us on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, Also for this podcast, if you'd like to follow it, you can download our mobile apps for iOS or Android. Also find us over on the Asia Society's excellent China website, chinafile.com. And of course, just look us up right there in iTunes. That's the best way. China Africa Project, and you'll find us and you can subscribe to us there. And we would be so grateful, and I'm begging and pleading everybody, if you could leave us a comment, because the more comments we get, the more that our podcast surfaces in the iTunes ecosystem, making it easier for other folks to find it. So we'll be back again very soon with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.